man, I walk around like I got a 36 inch chain. Hello and welcome to episode 895 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. I saw you tweeting about Christian Bethencourt yesterday, the Padres catcher who got into a game as a pitcher. Mm. If you were his agent, would you advise him to switch positions? I think that he is probably a better catcher than most of us still think. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's still young. He hit in AAA. He's still got, you know, some things going on. And so I, I will acknowledge that I probably, like most people probably have a, uh, a, a greater sense of him being a bust than is anywhere close to fair or accurate. So probably the answer is, is no. That said, I would be surprised if he couldn't. I, I mean, I'd be very surprised if he couldn't have a nice long career as a relief pitcher. And those guys yeah. make money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he looked he looked unpracticed. He looked like he looked like a position player pitching, kind of. But he hit mid nineties easy, and he had a. Insane I don't even know what you would call. Movement. Yeah, and I don't even know what you would call the off-speed pitch he threw people were calling it a knuckleball or a curveball or a something an ephus something in the mid 50s but obviously he can get it up there and i'm sure that if he were a full-time pitcher he would throw even harder and they would refine his delivery and so i would think that he'd be quite a good reliever and he i mean he has a He's, you know, he's young and hasn't played all that much, but he has a, what, a career 252 on base in the majors. He did hit a little in AAA, but the, he, he's had the best arm among catchers, of course, which is why you would think that he could be a, a decent pitcher even before we actually saw him pitch. And he wasn't a great framer or blocker. Like he didn't really seem to be that great at other aspects of catching. And the Braves traded him. Even though he was young and cheap and they signed A.J. Persinski for $3 million instead of playing Bethancourt, which makes me think that they had certainly seen enough of him. So I would probably convert him pretty soon <laughs> unless uh, unless he really breaks through. Yeah, there's a, a, a real potential for a cruel irony in his life if he keeps being just good enough to keep at catcher and and never does convert and ultimately ends up basically washing out of the game because he was too good of a hitter that mm-hmm. basically like the difference between like it's possible that we'll look back and say the difference between Bethancourt the career major leaguer who makes 36 million dollars and Bethancourt the washout who um you know is a triple a veteran at 29 is that he was too good a hitter that if yeah. he had just been born unable to hit so well he'd be a much more successful person. It's very, I, I would suppose that it's probably rare in life that you are uh, doomed by your, uh, by how good you are at things. Yeah. And, yeah. But that might happen. It might. He could be making closer money. All right. A couple other things. A few people emailed us, Alex emailed us, and some other people I think mentioned in the Facebook group. Our conversation on last week's email show about how long a leash a starting pitcher would get if he gave up home runs on every pitch to start the game. 
and you and I thought it would be something like four or maybe three if it were a, a rookie who you didn't want to didn't want to scar forever. And people pointed out that one thing that we didn't really take into account was that no one would have anyone warming up in this situation, and no one would even be stretching or thinking about warming up at that point. So you would need some time. I don't know that you could stall enough to actually have a pitcher ready unless you were going to say it was an injury or something and pull the guy and then the reliever gets warm-up pitches on the mound. Otherwise, you would need to allow some time. So Alex emailed in that he thinks the minimum is six, and other people came in with even higher estimates of how long it would take someone to get warmed up when no one is remotely prepared for that possibility. It's possible. I um and and I'm not uh I I take this very seriously and I think that this this concern might be uh might be exactly right. I'm not totally willing to concede it though. You know, you don't have to necessarily bring in a long man to relieve the guy as uh, you know I think we've seen some managers do recently uh in this situation, not this exact situation, but in the uh, situation where you bring your long man in uh, you sometimes see them now bring in a non-long man, a specialist or something, just to get you through that inning so that your long man, who's maybe more used to having a, a long warm-up uh, window, uh, can sort of start the next inning fresh, take his time, not feel rushed. And so I don't exactly know. I, in fact, someone someone write this piece. May, may I, Should I? I don't know. I would like to see a uh, a warm-up clock put on, on it, kind of every pitcher, like how much time from their first warm-up throw that is, you know, shown or mentioned on a broadcast to when they stop throwing. It's uh-huh. probably, there's probably too many complicating factors to really zero in on it. But like, I think, a, like a, you know, some of these specialist guys, I, I bet it's like seven, eight pitches in the, in the pen. And then... Um, you know, you get your nine on the mound. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, a home run, as you noted, a home run is uh, not only is it 20 some seconds um, for the play to resolve, but there's sort of a, a certain amount of pomp after a home run where, you know, it's sort of expected that the catcher's going to come out to talk to the pitcher, that you're going to wander around. You sort of reset the game a little bit. And so after the third one, uh, if you were a manager and you had a rookie on the mound, I would think that you get a guy stretching, maybe throwing, and uh, then you get you get your you know you get your two visits, you get all the ways that you can stall, um, and uh, so I, I'm not totally conceding that you you would have to have that, but it is possible. Mm-hmm. All right, and a follow up to what we talked about yesterday, the play at the plate between the Brewers and the Reds, where. Chase Anderson beamed Alfredo Simon as Tyler Holt was trying to steal home. Alex Kapasinskas, who is a Patreon supporter, says, I wanted to follow up on your discussion in the last podcast about what I just said in regard to whether it was intentional or not. I have some amount of personal experience with a similar play. When I played in high school, which wasn't terribly long ago, our coach instructed our pitchers that in the event that the batter or runner on third showed his hand a little too early on a suicide squeeze attempt, they were to throw the pitch at the batter to thwart their effort. This play even ended up happening once while I was catching. My point being, assuming my coach wasn't too abnormal, I'm sure many other coaches and players have thought about this before, especially the professionals. As long as it was on Anderson's mind, I wouldn't find it hard to believe at all that he adjusted mid-windup and intentionally threw at Alfredo Simon. In fact, I'd be surprised if it was not intentional. 
Yeah, that is a uh, that is I think common advice for a suicide squeeze play. But this was not a suicide squeeze play. There were there were two outs in the inning. Um, now maybe Anderson wasn't thinking it through and just went, well, this seems like a suicide squeeze, and did that by instinct. But this was not a suicide squeeze. If Simon were truly bunting, then he uh, would be doing you know a huge favor for the for the defense and. Uh, he'd be doing a huge favor for the defense because, of course, he would be bunting into the third out of the inning and the run wouldn't score. If you thought it was a straight steal of home, I don't know if, I, I don't know why it would be the advice on a straight steal of home because the batter's presumably not swinging. You get a freebie and you want to make the, the throw straight to the catcher so that he just has to lay the glove down. So it wouldn't really make sense at all on a straight steal of home. It wasn't a suicide squeeze. Uh, it was a straight steal of home. Uh, so I don't, I don't know that I, I, I think that if, if Anderson did this, then it, uh, for that reason, it changes it from smart play to dumb play. It's actually the completely wrong way of implementing this, uh, situational advice, uh, because that was not the situation. Mm-hmm. And also, I, th- you're not trying to hit the guy either. When you throw it at him in the suicide squeeze, I don't think you're trying to hit him. I think you do that because it's hard to get the bunt down. Uh, and that's a way of sort of defending against it. I, I don't know that you, maybe you do want to hit him, but you, you know, still you're putting a guy on base, even in a suicide squeeze, you're still putting a guy on base. And so I I would think that if the plan is to hit him, then the smarter plan would be to throw a pitch really high. Uh, Mm -hmm. if the plan is not to hit him, then that's a smart play. And I think the plan is not to hit him. Uh Uh-huh. And lastly, Terry wrote in to follow up on our Jose Batista, Rugned Odor discussion. And he says, so in one of your recent episodes, you spoke about Odor trying to throw the ball at Batista and how there isn't a precedent for punishment in that case. This was partly because he didn't actually succeed in hitting Batista. And so the commissioner could kind of address the fact that he tried by suspending him for the punch, but not acknowledging it publicly. They probably don't want to acknowledge it and make it a thing. But now that Batista is openly accusing Odor of throwing at him, does this change anything? Maybe by forcing the league to acknowledge it. And so the the comments were, Batista told Tom Verducci, I know exactly what he was trying to do when he threw the ball. He tried 100% to hit me in the face, and it's not the first time he's done it against me or some of my teammates, and there's video to prove that. And I don't know that it changes anything at this point, because it's probably too late to to add another suspension onto things, uh, now that one has already been put in place. So... I don't know that it changes anything in this case, but maybe in a future case, people will be watching Odor even more closely now or other fielders. Okay. All right. Let's take a question from Henry, who says, For the most part, I think advanced statistics make watching the game more fun. I like knowing players' heat maps, their BABIP tendencies, their WRC+. It adds to my enjoyment of the action. But I'm struggling with fielding stats. This is not an I don't trust feeling stats email. I believe the stats, but I don't know how to watch the game with the stats in mind. I'm a Mets fan, and our new shortstop, Estrubal Cabrera, is one of those guys who, quote, makes all the plays. The announcers, the talk radio guys all love him, and he's fun to watch. Smooth, balanced, steady, sure-handed. But the fan graphs and baseball reference stats say he's terrible, like worse than Jeter terrible. So how do we watch fielders with the stats in mind? From the stands or from your living room, what do you look for in the game to see if the guy is having a good day or a bad day? How do you watch a player's strengths and weaknesses? When one shortstop's web gem is another man's routine grounder, how do you eyeball a guy's value in the field? 
Hmm, not easy. It's uh, very deceptive sometimes, and it even seems to fool practiced observers of the game. So, Ben, let's rephrase this, uh, or or let me ask you a question that is along these lines. But um, if you didn't have defensive metrics, but you you now you were now aware of them, you were aware of the spread of value. Uh, maybe even you had the last hundred and you know the last hundred years of defensive metrics, including the last um, you know decade of really you know pretty pretty advanced ones. And but they all of a sudden they just, just going forward they quit getting recorded, and so you didn't know anything. Uh, and uh, let's further stipulate that it's a whole new group of major leaguers, so you can't you can't even rely on what you knew about Estrubal Cabrera's or anybody else's previous defensive metrics. How close do you think you would be to a player's, say, defensive run saved, just eyeballing it? And and let's say you, you can watch as much as you want, but probably you, you'd watch, you know, as you do a dozen or a couple dozen games from the player in a year. Yeah. So so they are recording this, but they're not publishing it. So you, you don't get to see it. You have no exposure to it, no access to it. Uh, and at the end of it, you're going to put a number on every guy. How, what, what's, what's the correlation? And I'm watching on TV, presumably, you, eh, mostly. I, I, I don't, you could answer that however you want. Would it, do you think it would help you to not watch it on TV? I think it would help me uh-huh. if I actually went to a game every day and yeah. I were watching for this. Okay, I think so, it, it so, would help. So let's, so you can be Ben Lindbergh, uh, beat writer for a team. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you can also be Ben Lindbergh. Fan of team watching every game on TV. And then finally, you can be Ben Lindbergh, general surveyor of the sport, who might see Carlos Correa play uh, snippets of 11 games um, a year. Uh, mm-hmm. how, I, I'm, so now I'm curious to know, first off, how, how close you'd be. But second, I'm kind of curious to know how, how much better you think you'd be in the kind of high information situations compared to the low information situations. Yeah. It's hard because even if you are a beat writer, I, I think that would that would really help my evaluations of the players on the team I was covering and seeing every day, I think. But I'm not sure how much it would help my evaluations of the guys who were coming in and I was seeing somewhere between, you know, three and 19 times a year. Not sure it would make that much of a difference but, for those guys. Okay, I'm only asking you for the guy that you're covering, though. Okay, so I think I'd be... I don't know how to express how much better I would be, but I think I would be significantly better being in the ballpark every day because it's really hard, I think, on TV. You can get deceived so easily by how athletic someone looks and also just how sure-handed they are, as Henry is saying about Estrubal Cabrera, because that's really easy to tell. If someone makes an error and bobbles a ball and throws the ball away, very easy to tell. And if he never does that, also very easy to tell. Whereas range and how many balls you get to is is tough. I mean, you could just, I guess, count how many balls a guy fields, and that's not the worst indication of range. But it's really hard when you're watching on TV and you don't get to see the starting point, and often you don't really get to see a frame of reference for where the person is. If you can't see another fielder or he's not right next to the base or something, you might not exactly know where he is in space. And so it's really tough, I think, um, to tell. So I I think I would be pretty bad at <laughs> evaluating guys just if I were watching on TV all the time. I think 
it might help that I am aware of these biases. And so I would question myself more than, say, if we had never had defensive stats that had said that Derek Jeter was bad or Estrubo Cabrera was bad. I know that it's possible to get fooled. And so I would I would examine my assumptions. But even so, I think I'd probably be pretty bad. I, I mean, there are still so many guys who the stats disagree with the traditional evaluators and at least, you know, in smaller samples. And so I'm not uh, I'm not sure I could really do a good job of distinguishing between the guys who look good and the guys who actually are good. So there's you there's a 50% chance basically that the guy's going to be a positive defender by whatever metric and a 50% chance he's going to be a negative defender. And so uh-huh. simply by flipping a coin, you at least have a 50/50 chance of correctly identifying whether he is a positive or a negative contributor. So uh-huh. what percentage chance would you have in these scenarios of getting just positive negative correct? Hmm. All right, I guess if that's the standard, I just have to be directionally correct. Then watching my team's fielders every day, I think I could get up to, say, 80% on TV. Okay. Yeah. So you'd be pretty good. Yeah, if that's the standard. It's a pretty low bar. But if I just have to say good or bad or, you know, useful or not useful, then yeah. Okay. Let me ask you one more question. And this one I have to do a uh, very, very brief bit of math. Thanks to the play index for making this possible. Um, okay. So last thing, I, I think I did this right, but the, um, I looked at, uh, I took, I used play index to get defensive runs saved for all shortstops who qualified for the batting title in individual seasons going back to 2012. So I have 99 shortstops and the standard deviation is 10 runs uh, for these shortstops. Okay. By what average margin would you miss the player's true defensive runs saved? Uh, would you guess? <laughs> Four. Okay. All right. So that's, that's pretty good. All right. I think that's about right. I think we'd do pretty well. Okay. Pers- personally, I think. I don't yeah. think. Actually, I, I say I think we'd do pretty I don't think that is. I don't think that that's well or not well. It's all relative. I, yeah. I So I don't want to say we'd do well. I think that for the most part, we'd have a pretty good idea who's good and who's not. To answer the question specifically, in lieu of, in absence of uh, fielding stats or, or uh, history with a guy's fielding stats, I think I generally look at whether the guy has a good arm and whether he seems quick. And I think probably I, there would be guys I'd miss on, like, uh, I'd probably, I'm, I don't know, I, I would, I probably would have missed on JJ Hardy. There are probably certain body types that I'm biased against for shortstops for instance, uh-huh. bigger shortstops. But uh, I don't know. I think I probably overweight arm in my mind. A guy who has a good arm, as long as he's not completely botching everything, I generally think is a good shortstop. And a guy who has a bad arm, I generally think is a bad shortstop. That's, I'm not recommending other people do that, but to answer yeah. the question. Yeah. It'd also be a different answer probably if you were watching the game on mute and if you were listening to the commentary. Because if you listen to a full season of commentary, then you're opinions are influenced by what you're hearing. So guys who are good at defense or have good defensive reputations will get all kinds of acclaim for their defensive performance from broadcasters or from what you read. So it's hard to avoid having your opinions colored by other people's opinions. And I would guess that for the most part, 
people who are regarded as good defenders tend to be good defenders. There are exceptions, but I think that's mostly true. And so you kind of get a an accidental wisdom of crowds just, just following the game and hearing what other people say about players. Mm, definitely. All right. Question from Brett. I guess this is relevant. Brett is a Patreon supporter. He says, you've talked a few times, and I think he's mostly referring to you, about how baseball skills correlate to each other. Those who are good at hitting tend to be good at catching, throwing, and running. I'm curious to hear why you think that is. Are those skills built on a common foundation, strength, or general athleticism? Or are players who exhibit one outlier skill more likely to get training in others, so that by the time they reach the professional level, those players have well-rounded skill sets? Put another way, if nature were less nurtured, how nurtured would it be? I think those skills are built on a common foundation of strength and general athleticism. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I agree. And the other thing is probably a factor, too. Uh, If you're really good at one thing then people will invest more time in getting you up to a a level of competence in other things. True, yeah. So it's nature and nurture, as always. All right, James in Sarasota. Actually, all right, well, since we're doing lots of questions about appearances, let's take a question from Mike. Presume we live in a world where no one knows who Jorge Soler is. If you conduct an experiment where you took this video and he... (laughs) sends us a link to a video of Jorge Soler hitting a very long home run. And you were able to edit out completely Jorge Soler's bouncing gold chain in one version of the video. And then you conducted an experiment where you showed the two versions of the video to a statistically significant number of groups of scouts, writers, evaluators, etc. And then asked them to estimate Soler's OPS plus for the full year. Which version of the video would get a higher number? And how much higher would it be? Uh, I don't have any... Any idea how to answer this question? Uh, and it's a sort of a it's a sort of a scary question. Uh-huh. Um, and so you could really go either way, right? I mean, that's the the thing about it is that I don't think I think a lot of people in the game have strong opinions about things like giant gold chains yeah. uh, or uh, extreme aggro intensity or cerebral. Uh, natures. The problem is that um, all of those extremely strong opinions are influenced by the other things that they see in the player. And so the many times the strength and weakness of the gold chain depends on the player. It is either you are cocky, you don't take it seriously, or you are confident, you don't fear failure. Right. And in it really does depend partly on what else they see in you, and it depends partly on whether the results are there. And if the results are there, all sorts of great things are used after the fact to explain what made you so great. Um, and if they're not there, they're used to explain why you why you failed. And yes. so it's really hard to say, to answer the Jorge Soler question, without also knowing how good Jorge Soler is. Uh-huh. <laughs> and without knowing how much else you know about Jorge Soler. So rather than say positive or negative, because I don't think you can say, do you, uh, what do you think is the, do you think that there would be a, a change in either direction? Uh, or how big a change do you think there would be in either direction? And, I... do, and so just do absolutes. We're not talking positive or negative. Yeah. Would there, would, would it affect the average, the average scout, writer, evaluator? Uh, would it affect their estimate? for Solaire's OPS Plus in either direction. Yes. 
Sig- I think it would. Okay, significantly by more or let's say by by greater or fewer than nine points. Oh, of OPS plus, we're going OPS plus. So let's right. go say by greater or less than uh, four points of OPS plus. <laughs> I'll say more. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that's the other the the part of the question that I really that really gets make you know gets nerve wracking is then imagining that how much the question would differ based on Solaire's cultural background and right. race. Uh, yeah. And so, like, I could have an idea of what, I, like, like, for instance, I don't think I'm going into dangerous territory here, but I, it's always possible I am. Um, so forgive me, I'm doing my best. But okay. I think that Solaire, just based on what I know about the sport, I think that Solaire's evaluations would go up because... I agree. Uh, and I think that if it were... Uh, John Lackey wearing it, it would go down. <laughs> I, just because I think you're the the part of the the thing is that everybody's looking for they're trying to compare a player to a version of that player that they have su- seen succeed or fail before, and the the race based comps are lazy and misleading and reductive but i assume that they happen because people see a guy and go oh he reminds me of another guy that i saw who who succeeded and therefore i think he'll succeed or who failed and therefore i think he'll fail and to me the solaire gold chain would probably be used to find successes i don't yeah. know yeah. i think i mean jewelry in general throughout human history whether it's man or woman or regardless of race it's a status symbol right that's why it's a popular thing i mean people might think it's aesthetically pleasing or it might serve some purpose like a wedding ring but it's a display of wealth and status it's i can afford this rare item and you can't and so if someone is wearing some flashy jewelry i would i would guess that in most situations people would revise their estimate upward of that person's status and, and worth, even if it's unconscious. Mm-hmm. So I, I think maybe, you know, if he were like, this is clearly a, a big leaguer, so maybe you would have some some prejudices come in with a younger guy where, you know, you think that he hasn't earned that status or something and, and, and the makeup is bad and it will backfire. But once he's made the major leagues if he's still confident enough in his abilities to flash the chain then uh, that speaks to some some confidence and and confidence can be a a good element of makeup even if it's i don't know even if it borders on brashness like the the bryce harper kind of makeup that can often be a positive attribute for a player who has to compete against other players so yeah, I would revise my estimates upward, maybe for almost anyone. You would revise your estimates upward, or you think that... I, my estimate of other people's estimates. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Okay. Play Index? Sure. Play Index comes from a listener named Rob, who asks me a win streak question. Rob asks, I've always been curious about the distribution of winning streaks. In theory, one would think slightly more than half of all one-game win streaks turn into two-game win streaks. And this trend would continue until infinity. I don't think this is necessarily true, especially once win streaks get high enough. Perhaps pressure increases with more wins or teams get worn down 
quicker because they are trying so hard. The problem for me with those reasons is that I could flip them the other way. Pressure should drop because your position in the standings is increasing where you can afford to take more plays slash games off due to your success. Do you have any insight on whether it's harder to win game number 10 in a win streak than number 5? And if it's more difficult, any thoughts as to why this might be? So I use play index to basically look at how long all streaks are and see basically what percentage continue and grow. Um, and so um, this required a, a few different play index searches because there are tens of thousands of one-game streaks over a long period of time, but not very many 16-game win streaks in the course of baseball history. And I wanted to get the largest sample possible without getting totally overwhelmed with, um, well, an overwhelming play index. Uh, so uh, I have a few different time periods, but basically all the time periods, uh, the, the shorter the streak, uh, the shorter the time period I used. But I basically um, kept on moving it so that I would get a large, as large a sample as I could handle with this. So, uh-huh. um, so the first thing though, and the first thing I did not use play index for, the first thing I used Russell Carlton for, and that is simply to answer the question of how often the team that wins today should win tomorrow. And I wasn't sure philosophically how to answer this, and if there is a way to answer it any other way than empirically. Like, if you simply know the nature of baseball, the nature of, you know, the wind distribution, the spread of wins from good teams to bad, the home field advantage, do you have enough math to figure out what it should be? Uh, and I didn't know how to do that, so I asked Russell to get it empirically for me. He did. Uh, but let me uh, first, before I tell you, ask you to think of a number and tell me what that number is. What do you think is the probability of a team winning today winning tomorrow? 52%. 52%. That's a little lower than I would have said. I mean, just simply knowing home field advantage is 54%. You've got to figure that since the good teams win enough more of the time than they lose, the team that wins today is more likely to be the better team and therefore is going to be much more likely, you know, is going to be more likely to win tomorrow, particularly mm-hmm. when you have good teams playing bad teams and you have three game series. So you're very often getting the same matchup. Between games. So when you have the Cubs and the Reds, for instance, today, that they're not playing today, but if you did, if you had the Cubs and the Reds playing today, the Cubs would be like, you know, 80 some percent likely to win that game, maybe, arguably. And once they win that, then they're far greater than 52 percent to win tomorrow. Now, of course, yeah. they're 20 percent likely to lose that game and then they're considerably less likely to lose the next day uh, as well. But uh, I wasn't sure. Anyway, uh, I would have guessed higher. I probably would have guessed like uh, 55.5%. Um, and uh, the answer surprised both Russell and I, although it won't surprise you as much. It is 51.1%. It's actually very, very close to a true coin flip, which surprised me. Huh. Yeah. So we have now our uh, stat. We have our baseline. And you have to assume that in Rob's question, there's no extra pressure on the team that has just won one game. They're not worried about this burgeoning win streak. They're not thinking, oh, no, if we lose tomorrow. So that's a fairly pure test, uh, I would think. So 51.1% is how often the team that wins today should win tomorrow. And as Rob notes, that number should go up uh, with each additional win because uh, the better teams are even more likely to win two games in a row, or three games in a row, or four games in a row. There are a few things that I think complicate this, and this might actually be um, part of the reason that we ended up with 51.1, which is a, a somewhat lower percentage. Baseball is not like basketball, 
where you have essentially the same resources available to you every game. And you are more likely to win. You know, a team could be a, a 650 or 700 winning percentage team one day and a 380 winning percentage team the next day simply because of the one change in their lineup, the, the person on the mound. Yeah. Um, and you're also, I don't know how much this matters, but you're also more likely, you're less likely to use your bullpen in a win, but you're much more likely to use the uh, the best part of your bullpen. And so you're a lot more likely to have your closer pitching a second or third or even fourth straight day if you just won. Um, and But mainly the starter question. And so it could be that the teams that win are more likely to have just used their ace. And so we know by definition that they are not using their ace the next day. Uh, and maybe they, the team they beat was less likely to lose their ace. And so we know that by definition, they are more likely to be using their ace the next day. So maybe that's why. And so you would think that that might show up in some of the lower number winning streaks and probably should wash out the higher you get. And you start going through the rotation multiple times because who knows where you're on the rotation at that point. But to answer the question, Ben, 51.1% of teams that win game one win game two. All right. 57% of teams that win game two win game three. Uh-huh. And that's pretty much where the trend ends. It gets a little bit noisy beyond that because we're talking about samples of, you know, six, seven, eight hundred games, but still only six, seven, eight hundred games. So three game win streaks are only 49% likely to become four game win streaks. Uh, and five game win streaks are only 48% likely to become six game win streaks. Those are two cases where you're actually less likely to win or you have been less likely to win in the samples that I've drawn from. Um, they're the outliers. Um, 11 game win streaks are exactly 50% likely to become 12 game win streaks. And 16 game win streaks are exactly 50% likely to become 17 game win streaks. Every other, every other situation, the team has been more likely to win and Quite, quite often, much more likely to win. Uh, for instance, once we get past five games, if you win six games, you're 55% likely to win the seventh, and then 55% likely to win the eighth, and then 55% likely to win the ninth, and then 57% likely to win the tenth. So it, you're not seeing a, uh, you're not seeing a, a line going upward where, you, as we might have hypothesized, you'd be ever more likely to win. However, you are more likely to win. Not increasingly likely, but more likely to win. Uh, taken as a whole, uh, lumping all of these together, so the 19-game win streak and the two-game win streak are treated the same. Uh, once you have a winning streak going, you are 54% likely to win the next game, uh, which is more than 51%, of course, and does suggest that, uh, in fact, the pressure does not get to teams. Uh, it may not, uh, I don't know, there might be something there, but it does not get to teams. They tend to keep winning uh, more often than not. Uh, and uh, maybe the uh, the curiosity here is that since 1947, which is the oldest, uh, which is the longest sample I've used, there have been no 17-game win streaks in history. There has been one 18-game win streak, there has been one 19-game win streak, and there has been one 20-game win streak, but nobody has ever won 17. You win 17 in a row, you're pretty much guaranteed. To win 18 in a row. So you just got to get there. You just got to make it to 17, folks. 12-game win streak, by the way, is the peak. Uh, tw uh, 60, other than 17-game win streak. 64% of 12-game win streaks become 13-game win streaks. But again, 11-game win streaks at the high level are the most likely to be snapped. And so that's all. that all washes out. It's all just noise. The, the question has been answered. 
follow-ups not welcome. Well, I always like when we have a conclusive answer to a play index question. Mm-hmm. 51% though is what I'll remember from this more than anything else. 51%. Yeah. As soon as I said it and you started talking, I started regretting my initial estimate, but <laughs> I, I shouldn't have. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Oh, by the way, one one little one very small detail is that in fact uh, all those numbers that I gave you are slightly lower than they should be because if you end a season uh, with a winning streak, then my means of querying it would treat it as snapped at that uh-huh. point. But of course, the season just ended, and so I don't think that affects many. There aren't a lot of seasons ending on twenty game win streaks or twelve game win streaks or anything like that. Uh, but you would revise everything slightly. Higher. And we might, if, if I did this right, I might even get the three and the five game win streaks up to 50%. Although, probably three, three game win streaks, probably not five game win streaks. All right. All right. Question from Patreon supporter Matt Armstrong. In comparison to the Rich Hill contract conundrum, what would you have paid Tim Lincecum if he had thrown 95 miles per hour in his tryout? Hmm. I don't trust tryouts. Right. So they're. There'd definitely be more uncertainty than if he had done it in a game situation. But uh, how hard did, I mean, even young Tim Lincecum, well, he averaged, what, 94 or something. So he'd he'd be, if he could demonstrate that he could throw as hard as peak Lincecum for uh, a few pitches in a tryout, which is something that he could not have done these last few years when he was averaging 80-something, what would that be worth? Boy, I mean, a, a five or six mile an hour bump from a guy who had known health issues uh, and presumably no longer does and yeah. who has... The, and who was, you know, the best pitcher in the league was, when right. he was throwing that hard. Exactly. And who we know has the great secondary pitch. But, man, I just... It's so hard to trust five throws on a gun. Uh, yeah. So I would say I'd give him one year and 12.5 million. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Does it? I think it does. I mean, I'm I'm assuming that uh that you're not going to just blame it on a hot gun. Let's say you can actually trust that he is throwing that hard. You have multiple guns or you have pitch FX set up in the bullpen or whatever it is. So, he is actually throwing that hard. You don't know whether he could throw that hard for more than 10 pitches. Or whether he'll throw that hard next time you see him, but he is throwing that hard for that one day, and we know what Tim Lincecum can do if he could throw that hard, so I think I'd be willing to bite on the fact that maybe the layoff fixed something. Who do you think provides the baseballs? Because At a wouldn't, wouldn't you be sort of suspicious that he was throwing a baseball that was a couple ounces light? <laughs> yeah like that's... somebody i wonder if somebody manufactures for like fifteen thousand dollars the fraudulent tryout baseball <laughs> and you like you bring your own but you're you know you show up you, i got mine i'm good i got mine i brought mine and uh you, th- you throw this slightly lighter ball get an extra couple ticks yeah who's checking that yeah that's yeah, good question all right and last question from james in sarasota who says Picture this. It's October 2nd, 2016, the last day of the regular season. All of the playoff spots and their seedings have been determined. None of the games has postseason impact. The 10 playoff teams rest their starters in anticipation of the postseason. The other 20 teams all try to get their starting pitchers to break the single-game strikeout record. They do this by refusing to field any balls put in play, such that the only outs recorded would be via strikeout. 
Each team uses its best starting pitcher in this effort and keeps him in the game without fielding any batted balls until one of the following things occurs. The starting pitcher records his 21st strikeout. The starting pitcher throws 140 pitches in the game. The starting pitcher throws 40 pitches in an inning. Or lastly, it becomes mathematically impossible for the starter to record 21 strikeouts within the 140 pitch limit. Possibly to help with the pitch count, the team fields a batted ball once every couple innings or so if it's put in play on the first pitch. If 20 teams are trying this, what are the odds of at least one of them succeeding? How many of the starting pitchers would even make it through the fifth inning? Did you do any math? Nope. Seems like if we're going to do that, I mean, this one feels like we should have done a, a little math. Yeah, I guess math would have been helpful here. All right, I'll do a quick, I'm going to do a very quick play index. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at, uh, so from team, I'm looking at this year in team games 35 to 39. So I basically picked at random. I took all the starters. I'm going to take all of their starting, their their lines, drop them into a spreadsheet, and divide the number of pitches by the number of strikeouts. I'm not going to give them extra credit for pitching for the strikeout, and you presumably uh-huh. they would get extra credit, and they would do better because they'd be pitching for the strikeout. But otherwise, I'm basically just going to treat everything is either a strikeout or not a strikeout, which is in this scenario is what we're talking about. Everything that's not a strikeout is not going to be an out. Uh, So this guy is going to get to go until he runs out of pitches. And all that matters is whether he can strike out a batter in what, seven pitches on average, roughly? Yeah. So uh, I have a hundred-ish starts here, sorting by pitches per strikeout, smallest to largest. Not one pitcher struck out a batter every seven pitches. The best was Clayton Kershaw, who against the Mets on May 12th struck out a batter every 8.3 pitches, 8.4 pitches. Then Michael Pineda every nine pitches, David Price every 9.4. And those aren't even, those don't even get you close. I mean, even if you treated every batted ball as a hit and gave him infinite chances to get 20, you know, seven outs via strikeout, uh, the pitches would become prohibitive. So unless Unless these guys uh, could really, really, really turn on the uh, strikeout magic, uh, I don't think it would be likely to happen. Uh-huh. Uh, it would be a lot more likely to happen than on a regular day. Yes. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't put it past Kershaw, for instance, uh, or you know some other pitchers. But yeah. I think the odds are, on a, on a given day, though, if you only have 20 shots, oh, Kershaw wouldn't be pitching. Kershaw probably. wouldn't be pitching, right? Well, he might be You'd now. still have some, some really good starters going, but... The best starters on non-playoff teams. Yeah, well, the Dodgers are a non-playoff team right now. Right now, yeah. Uh-huh. So Kershaw might be starting. But, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Given only one day at this, given 20 starts from non-playoff teams, I would put your chances at something like 2 two or 3% uh-huh. of okay. getting to of, – not of any individual pitcher, but of, the, of anybody in the whole league doing it. Unless the hitters are, you know, accomplices, in which case – Well, who cares to the whole thing, but then really, really, really who cares? (laughs) Right. All right. That was just a play to sneak in a second play index to this episode. Third. Third Third. third play index. (laughs) All right. So that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Today's five Patreon supporters to single out are Daniel Lovett, 
Flip Coleman, Kyle Lewis, Scott Ross, and Brian Eric. Thank you. You can also buy our book. The only rule is it has to work. Our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. The New York Times book review is coming out later this week. We've gotten a sneak preview and it's a positive review. So if you don't believe us, believe the New York Times or believe what I'm telling you about the New York Times. Buy the book. If you've read it, please review it at Amazon and Goodreads and check out all the bonus content at our website. The only rule is it has to work.com. And the Stompers 2016 season has started also. So if you're now a Stompers fan, you can show your support for the team. Get your Stompers gear at the fan shop at stompersbaseball.com, where autographed copies of the book are also for sale. Use the coupon code BP to get a 15% discount on everything. And you can find Stompers broadcasts on the website and on TuneIn. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash effectively wild. We are closing in on 4,000 members. And please rate and review and subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index, which we used an awful lot in this episode, by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP there. Send us emails at podcasts at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We will be back with another show tomorrow. <laughs>